Good morning. Certainly a pleasure to be here with you today. I know that many of you have joked this morning about our good brother Frank asking so many preachers to come and preach when they're here. And as a fellow preacher, I understand what it's like to preach in a congregation. Some preachers don't like it. They consider it their pulpit. I'm not a fan of that concept myself. I understand the danger that can lie within allowing another preacher to stand in the pulpit. If you don't know that preacher, if you don't know that they're sound, and I hope this morning by me proclaiming the unsearchable riches of God that you will find me to be a sound man in the faith. You know, uh, I posted yesterday on Facebook that we were going to be in Montgomery. I allow our supporters, I do missionary work, and I allow them to know where we're going to be at on a regular basis and where we'll be giving presentations and preaching. And, and the messages started flooding my inbox on Facebook. Please tell Brother Chester hello for me. And the list was too long to tell you all of them, but from f the Facebook world says hello, Brother Chester. And um, to the rest of you, I don't know. But Brother Chester, everybody wants to say hi. I, yeah, I've wondered what men like the Apostle Paul or Moses would say about things like social media. Um, I, I can imagine them sitting around talking about the things that they would receive on their Facebook messages or on their wall or on Twitter I can see Moses and, and men like Paul sitting there talking and saying, hey, have you, uh, have you seen the post from Jonah? He said three days ago he was going deep sea fishing, but I haven't heard from him since. You know, it's the, the things that you might find would be interesting. This morning, I want us to talk about something very serious, though. Something that we all struggle with every day. Something that each and every one of us are not immune from it's a subject of temptation temptation is something that we read about Luke chapter 4 Matthew chapter 4 that even our Lord endured I am concerned that within our brotherhood and within our world we don't even understand really what temptation is and what it is not and I would like us to begin by just essentially getting a definition, a working definition of what temptation is. I grew up thinking that any time I was tempted, I was sinning. This is actually a very common belief I have come to learn. Many people think that the actual act of temptation within itself is that of sin. Oh, I was tempted. Young people will come to me and say, and they'll think they have done something wrong by being tempted within the act itself. I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4. Just kind of put your finger between those two passages. We're going to read them combined together. This is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I have combined them. And as I go through them, I, I will tell you which passage we're in. But I've made one essential text out of it. And we will go from there. Luke chapter 4 says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, Matthew, then was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. Luke says, And in those days he did eat nothing. And Matthew, and when the tempter, Luke, the devil, came to him, Matthew says, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up to the holy city. Luke records, To Jerusalem. And setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and he saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it's written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world. And Luke says this, In a moment of time, Matthew, And the glory of them, and saith unto them, All these things, Luke, this power, Matthew, will I give thee. Luke says, And the glory of them, for that which is delivered to me, and to whomsoever I will give it. Matthew, if thou wilt fall down and worship me, and Luke, all shall be thine. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get behind, get thee hence. Luke says, Behind me, Matthew, Satan. For it's written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him. And Luke says this, And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed him for a season. And behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. There's some immediate lessons I think we can all learn from the text. I think they're given lessons, and I'm, I'm confident that you know these lessons, and we're not going to dive into those so much. I, I mean, first and foremost, Jesus was tempted. I mean, Jesus was tempted. I think that's, that's clear. Number two, Jesus prepared himself for the temptation. Number three, Jesus tries to tempt Jesus with things that Jesus already possessed. Number four, Satan tries to misuse Scripture to tempt Jesus. Number five, uh, Satan is not able to convince Jesus to sin. I think these are all things that we can very clearly see from the text. We've heard sermons had classes on these things. This morning, I want us to understand temptation in its truest form. And in order to do that, I've broken it down into several points. The first one being Satan comes to us in the form of desire. I want you to think about how Satan came to Jesus. Jesus has been in the wilderness 40 days. And what has he been doing? Fasting. The Bible says that he was hungered. I could almost at this point be like, wow, really? He was hungry. Have you ever fasted? I have tried fasting. Five days. I'm not a nice person when I fast. I'm convicted of that. Ask my wife. She's not either, though. We did it together. It was horrible. I was... My children are back there. Yes, it was horrible. It was so difficult. And here's Jesus, and he has gone 40 days without eating. And what does Satan come to him with? A shiny car? A new house? What's the first thing he comes to him? The very thing that he knew Jesus in the earthly human form would desire. Food. You know, Satan knows what we want. When we talk about a definition of, of temptation, temptation is an effort of the devil to reach us through our own lusts and desires. Go with me to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted, listen, when he is drawn away of what? His own lust 
and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin when it's finished, it bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. How does James say we are tempted? I, I can remember when I was a child, there was a little cartoon and it had a gentleman sitting on the shoulder on this side and one on this side. And remember, the devil made me do it. Now, Brother Chester, I'm not good at English, and I'm just going to ruin the English language right now for, for purpose of emphasis. But listen to me, young people, old people alike. The devil ain't never made nobody do nothing. You can take that to the bank. The devil ain't never made nobody do nothing. Every man sins when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. We sin because, you know what? We want to. We sin because we choose to. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, why did they sin? Because they chose to. The devil didn't make them do it. You go one chapter forward to chapter four, Cain and Abel. And what does God have to tell to Cain? That sin lies at your door. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Why? Because he was about to make a choice of his own desire, of his own lust to sin. And so God says it's there. It's a temptation and it's at your door and it's waiting on you. And you have to make a choice whether you're going to succumb to it or not. It's a desire of yours. I love the book of Hebrews chapter 4. It describes to us our Savior, our high priest. And it says in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we, can, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus, he, he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be a man that goes through temptation. He, he's saying he's not without having done this, but was in all ways, listen, in all points, Brother Taylor once said you can't get any aller than all. Brother, that's so true. Jesus was tempted in every way like as we are, but listen how he did it, yet without sin. See, sin and temptation are not equal. They're not equal. Jesus was tempted without sin. The sin happens when a person is drawn away of their own lust and enticed. We need to be careful. You know, I, I think a lot of people, they misconstrue what Peter says. First Peter chapter 5. Where he describes the devil as a roaring lion doing what? Roaming around, seeking whom he may devour. And we have a wrong concept. I am convicted. I have had in the past a wrong concept of Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. We need to understand that God alone is omnipresent, but Satan is not. He does not have the ability to be at Brother Frank's house and Brother Miller's house at the same time. He doesn't have that ability. He is a created being, and thus he is not God, and he does not have that ability. He is not waiting around the corner looking to see if you're coming, and boom, I got you. That's not how Satan's working, but that's how it's been portrayed to us, hasn't it? We need to get a grasp on this. 
Satan is not, woo, I got you. Woo, got you. All the time. Satan has put things and spun into circle a system of sin. You think about it. It didn't take much for Satan to get sin rolling, did it? Didn't take much. Because man desires those things. Satan isn't there constantly putting things in front of you. And let's stop giving him the credit that he's not due. Let's start calling sin what it is. It's when I choose it. I sin when I choose something because I want it. I desire it. I lust after it. You know, he doesn't have a personal vendetta against you or anybody else. He's got, he's got a personal vendetta against all Christians and all people and God in general. He wants us all to sin. He wants us all to be servants of him. You go read Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Everyone that sins is what? A servant of sin, of unrighteousness. But we're only his servants if we choose to be. He can't force you to do anything against your will. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10. Proverbs chapter 1, this, this great beginning section, this treatise on wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, verse 7. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. You go to verse 10. My son, if sinners entice thee, entice thee, consent thou not. The word entice there is a, it is an interesting word to me in the ancient Hebrew. It's often portrayed in a pictograph, this word, by the Hebrews. And the word entice here, talking about a person being enticed, would have a stick figure. I'm good at drawing those. So you got a stick figure of a man. Then you would have what would look like a cross, which would be a signpost. And then, so you'd have a, a stick figure man, then you'd have a signpost, and then you would have a hole. That's how it would be portrayed. Think about it. It's a post hole. He's saying enticement is a man walking along and he falls in the hole. That's how Satan wants us to, to be trapped. He's setting the snare, if you would. I, I'm, a, I'm a hunter. I'm a trapper. I like to do those kind of things. I've spent a lot of time in Africa and Asia around these kind of things. And that's the exact thing that they would use to trap somebody. Would be a hole in the ground that you would often make for a post. You conceal it a little bit and what happens? Boom. The animal falls in. He's trapped and he's caught. He said, my son, if sinners place in front of you a hole that you could fall in. Don't you fall in it. You'll be wise enough to know where to look for the hole. This is going to come back in a, in a minute to be really important. So hold on to that thought. First Timothy chapter three and verse seven. Paul speaks to Timothy about the snares of the devil. These are traps for birds often used out of wire or rope. I want you to ask a question right now. Why did Jesus choose to be tempted? See, he chose that. It says Jesus went to the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Let's, let's get the context. Matthew chapter 3 is the context for Matthew chapter 4. What has Jesus done? He's begun his personal ministry. He's gone to the Jordan River. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. And now he's beginning this personal ministry. Why start with temptation? 
Remember that Jesus had to prove to the Jews in the world that he was who he claimed to be. Think about it. He was tempted with physical needs, power, kingdom. Most men would have succumbed. Not Jesus. He already had all these things and he had dominion over them. And he was proving that temptation could be overcome. It was a very prominent thought among many of the scholars of the day that temptation's there and you're just going to give in to it. It's just what you're going to do. That's the nature of man. Jesus proved that's not the nature of man. God created us to be glorious for him. We are his glory. If you go read Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Brethren, our job is to be the glory of God. We are the pinnacle of his creation. God wants us to exemplify and glorify him in everything. What did Jesus say in the great sermon on the mount? Let your light so shine that may, men may see your good works and what? Glorify the Father which is in heaven. That's our job. That's our duty. And so he is showing that we can be that. He was fulfilling. You go back to Matthew chapter 3. All righteousness. We need to understand that we are far too often tempted by the things we lust. The things we desire. Because we put ourselves. Now listen. This is what I meant a while ago. When we're going to come back to that concept of that hole in the ground. That trap. That enticement. We put ourselves into situations. We put ourselves into the company of people. We put ourselves in places where we very often succumb and are susceptible to succumbing to temptation. Is that not true? You think about it. Is that not true? Where we go, what we do, who we associate with are all choices we make. Anybody make you come here today? Besides kids, don't, don't answer that question. Anybody make you come? No? Anybody make you go to Walmart last night? Somebody in here, the odds are you went to Walmart. Somebody did. Don't raise your hand. I think this guy went to Walmart. He's smiling like he did at least. The places we go, we, we choose to go there. Every morning when we get up, we make a choice about whether we are going to spend time with certain people, whether we're going to be in certain places, and that is our choice. I want you to think about it. If you struggle with alcoholism, don't hang out with people who drink. I, I'm going to even be extreme here for a second. Don't go to a bar or a liquor store. Don't watch football, maybe even, or a baseball game. Have you ever thought about all the commercials that are on a football and baseball game? What are they? Beer, beer, beer. Oh, and wait, more beer. If you struggle with lusting after the opposite sex, maybe don't watch a football game because you know what they have? A lot of cheerleaders that are dressed very lasciviously and move lasciviously. All you're going to see is those things. And if that is your desire, then you are in a position where you are primed to succumb to that temptation and thus sin. What? Preacher, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty extreme, preacher. Yeah, I, I reckon it probably is. I didn't come up with that idea, though. See, that's an idea that originated with our Savior. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it 
off. Why? Because it's better to enter into heaven maimed. It's better to enter into heaven maimed, deprived of something that you desire, something that you lust after, than into hell with both. That's the point. Is that extreme? Absolutely. Will it get you to heaven? Yes. I don't know what your goal is. My job, my goal is to get to heaven. My job, my, my goal is to get my wife. My job, my role is to get my children to heaven. Is that going to take some extreme actions? Absolutely. People all the time, I, I preach all over our brotherhood, all over the world, and people all the time, well, where do your children get your education? Where do they, where do they get an education? I said, we homeschool. One of the main reasons that we homeschool is not because we travel. It's because I want to protect my children from being in an environment where they're going to be constantly presented with sin at a very immature and young age where they cannot handle that. I know I am kicking over the can right now. But brethren, is it not true? I went to public school. Okay, I can say this. In fourth grade, I learned my best friend lost her virginity. I went to a school where I had eight kids most of the time in my class. There were 487 people in the town of Forgan, Oklahoma. You know, we, we call that Nowheresville. Oh, everyone said, oh, it was a little bitty school. It's great. No, no, listen, I'm not talking about the teachers. I'm talking about the kids that I was surrounded with. The environment in which I was subjected was not healthy for me in adolescence, growing and trying to become a God-fearing person. It, it did not encourage it, but rather it was something that discouraged it. I know I'm kicking over the can, but brethren, it is important that we think about the environment in which we spend ourselves and where we put our children. You cannot let the devil have the children all the time and then expect them to be righteous. Don't, don't put them in situations where they're sinful. The cost of discipleship is high, is it not? Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. The cost of discipleship is so high. And sinning doesn't just happen to us. It happens when we start allowing more and more temptation into our lives until we're finally overcome by it. Our job is not to snuggle up next to it, though. This seems to be the question I get from my brethren all the time is how close can I get to sin without sinning? How much is just too much, preacher? Well, let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. He says there to flee... Fornication. Does he say snuggle up to it? Get close. See how, see where the line is. No. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14 says to flee idolatry. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11 says to flee the love of money. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22 says to flee youthful lust. Does that sound to you like get close to it? Make it your friend as much as you can. No, it sounds like get away from it. How does someone sin? It doesn't just creep up on them and grab them. Go to Psalm chapter 1. It's a general progression. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Do you see the picture? He's walking along with it. He's getting closer. Then he starts to stop and hang out with it. And then all of a sudden, you know where he's at? Right in the heart of it. He's sitting with him. Blessed is the man that doesn't do that. Brethren, our question isn't, it should not be, how close can I get to sin? It's how far can I be from it? That should be our question. Walking, standing, sitting, those aren't things I want to do. You go to Proverbs chapter 5. 
And you see there, talking about fornication, talking about the strange woman. He says, for the lips of a strange woman drop as honeycomb. Her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on her. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Listen to what he says. He's just described this strange woman. Here's his, his encouragement. Remove thy way far from her. And come not nigh to the door of her house. You know what his encouragement is? Don't even get close. I'm kind of a pyro. I like to burn stuff. I think it's in my genetic code. That whole male thing, it's part of us, guys. It's, it's okay. Admit it. It's good. But, you know, if you get too close to fire, what happens? You get burned. That's what happens. I don't know if you know this. If you get too close to fire, young people, you get burned. Why would a man take fire in his bosom then? What's going to happen? He's going to get burned. He says, remove your feet far from her. Don't even come close to her door. Lest thou give your honor to others, your years to the cruel. Lest the strangers be filled with your wealth and your labors be in the house of a stranger. And you will mourn at the last when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how have I hated instruction? And my heart despised reproof. And have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me. I was almost in all evil in the house of the righteous. You hear the psalmist? He says, depart from her. That's what we need to do. You can go on. You read chapter 7. He describes again this strange woman. And it says that she flatters with her words in verse 5. I can imagine it. Because she's appealing to desire, isn't she? There is nothing about this woman that, that grosses a man out. She even uses her words to entice. You are so good looking. Man, you're strong. You smell good. One time I was preaching in a place and we were standing in the foyer. Young woman about my age walks up to me, stands next to me. I just put on some cologne to hide my body odor. And she uh, walks up next to me and she does one of these things. And she goes, oh, you smell good. And about that moment, I love my wife. Listen, I love her. She stepped right in between the two of us and kind of gently let that young lady know to step away. But what had that young lady done? See, she had enticed by compliment, which is dangerous, flattering words. See, she appealed to his pride. She, she spoke of a man's good strength and his good looks. But the psalmist or the Proverbs writer now describes him being like an ox going to a slaughterhouse and how he goes in ignorantly. Like a genuine dunce, he walked right into the hole. Because of desire. If we are honest, we know why. It's because she had what he lusted after and he desired. He liked how she looked in her attire of a harlot. He liked how her house was arrayed in nice tapestries. And she used this to tempt that young man. In verse 21, it says, with her fair speech, she caused him to yield. And forced him with her flattering lips. And he went straightway. Such a young, weak, feeble woman, through her temptation, slain many a man that was mighty. 
And in verse 25, it begs us not to let our hearts decline or to go down the street of her ways. I want you to think about something. I don't know, anybody in here afraid of drowning? Afraid of the water? Yeah. You know, you don't drown on dry land. You don't drown on dry land. What's the point? If you don't go on the water, you don't have to worry about drowning. If you don't go down her street, you don't have to worry about being tempted by her. If you don't go into the bar, you don't have to worry about drinking. If, if, do, you, do you get me? We are tempted of our own lust, our own desires. If we don't go there, we don't have to worry about it in the first place. We need to be careful because desire can be deadly. That's what Satan tried to use on Jesus, desire. Second thing he tried to use was doubt. Doubt. Satan attacked Jesus with everything he had. He went after one of the most susceptible parts of man, though. And let us not forget that Jesus was fully man. He left the glories of heaven, according to Philippians chapter 2. He thought it not robbery. Then he left and came here. And the devil tried to use doubt against Jesus. You know, was Jesus free of misgivings? In the garden, before his death, was there not just a little bit of doubt? What better way to attack a man than to get them to doubt themselves? Satan challenges Jesus' mind by saying these words, If thou be, if you are the Son of God, would it not be easy for Jesus to question himself of whether or not he was the Son of God? Was he not born in a stable? Is that really a place you'd be born if you're a king? Was he not the son of a carpenter? Was he not from Galilee? Was he really the Son of God? Let me ask you, why did the king of kings and the lord of lords have to spend 40 days in this desert in the midst of wild animals, rough rocks, alone, and emptied of all the necessary things of life? Is that something that you would say was fitting for our Savior? And I believe this is the central attack of Satan against Jesus. If, if he is the son of God, he should be able to eat and not be hungry. If, if he's the son of God, should he not be instead sitting and reigning in Jerusalem instead of out there? If he is the son of God, should he not instead of, of hiding in the wilderness be ruling in the kingdoms of men and all of them glorifying, <coughs> glorifying him? Is that not what should have been happening? See, Satan loves it when we doubt. He loves it when we doubt. He loves it when we question or not whether we are really saved when we've done what God says to do to be saved when we're living faithful. He loves it when we doubt. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says, We can know these things are right unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you can know that you have eternal life, brethren. Peter, what does Peter say in 2 Peter chapter 1? That you can have an abundant, if these things be in you and abound, he then goes on to say you can have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think some people think that they're going to get into heaven like Indiana Jones escaped all them tunnels and everything in all them movies. Like they're going to get through, as Brother Curtis Cates would have said, by the skin of your teeth. Brethren, that ain't how you're going to get into heaven. You either are or you aren't. We're either saved or we're not. It's not a gray area. It's not questionable. We are or we're not. Have we done what God says? And are we living the way we should? But Satan wants us to start questioning, am I? He wants us to question if the church of Christ is really the church of the Bible that Jesus bought with his blood. Is it really? You know, it seems kind of strict to me. And people are going to put doubt in our minds. 
What if he could get you to question if instrumental music really is wrong in New Testament worship? What if he could get you to question or not whether or not alcohol in any form aside from medically needed is okay to consume? I've personally seen and experienced this. My entire immediate family fell to the what if question. Doubt stole my physical family from the Lord's church. See, Satan doesn't have to lie to you blatantly to get you to turn from the Lord. He only has to get you to start doubting. Third thing is despair. Here's Jesus. He's alone. He's by himself. He's hungry. He has no one around him to help. And Satan tries to use this against Jesus. He says, throw yourself off the pinnacle and the angels will come rescue you. He's appealing to despair. Have you ever felt alone? You ever felt lonely? I have. You ever felt like you were the only one enduring what you're going through? A couple years ago, I came back from Africa. didn't know it when I came back, but I had malaria. American hospitals, they're not just real great about treating malaria because they don't deal with malaria here. Come to find out I had two forms of malaria. had two different kinds of the malaria parasite floating around in my blood. And I spent about 30 days in a hospital. Most of that was in ICU. And I can remember at one point laying there saying, oh, I must be the only guy. You go home and Google how many people die every year of malaria, how many people contract it every year is even a more astounding number. Almost half of the world every year deals with malaria. Was I alone? In that hospital in Galveston, I was. But in the world and in the grand scheme of things, I wasn't alone. Matter of fact, I was in the upper percentage because I had amazing medical treatment. I wasn't alone. But you know, the devil wants us to feel like this. He wants us to feel total despair. Don't we feel sometimes alone in our trials? But Paul deals with this. He, he, he tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You, you go read it. He, he says that the, the trials that we go through, they are common to man. That means you're not alone when you go through trial or temptation. You ever lost a family member, felt alone, like no one else has ever felt how you feel? Guess what? We all have. You ever felt like you had an illness? You're the only one? You're not alone. There is no problem that doesn't affect countless other people on this earth. You know, some people, you know, just like they misuse other verses, they misuse this one. They'll say, you know, you can go to a drinking party, see, because it says at the end God will find... He will, he will provide a way of escape. People say, well, you know, I can go to a drinking party and God's going to provide a way of escape. Like there's going to be a magic portal. I'll get there. I know there's going to be beer, but I show up anyway. Not real smart. And I get there and I see it and then I go, oh, I need a way of escape. And God's going to provide a magic portal. Bloop, I'm out. Is that how that works? I think some of my, I've heard it preached that way almost. Brethren, that's, you know what the way of escape was? Having enough sense to know not to go. Having the wisdom. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Don't go in their ways. Blessed is the man that walketh not. Standeth not. Sitteth not. Our way of escape was already there. We could have said the, the words that we don't like to say. No. That was our out. God is telling us about being alone, not some magic portal. We need to be careful. Desire is deadly. Doubt will drown you. Despair is dangerous. The last point, and the sermon will be yours, is delusion. 
delusion. The devil wants us to believe a lie. See, he lied to Jesus. You think about it. Satan tells Jesus, I can give you the kingdoms of the world. God's given them to me. They're in my possession. Let me ask you a question. Who created those kingdoms? Who created the mountain that he took him up on? Who created the, the wheat that they made the bread from? Who created the rocks? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 tells me that was Jesus Christ. Satan didn't own those. He believed himself a lie and tried to convince Jesus of it. Jesus already had them. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 10. God tells Jeremiah his job is to be over the kingdoms and to root them up and to pull them down and destroy. God gave him that because God alone has that power. Not Satan. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4 says that the kingdom of heaven, the church, would consume all the kingdoms of the world. How? Because God controls them. You go read Romans chapter 13. Even the governments that be are there because of God. Satan doesn't have control of them. He wanted to, to delude Jesus' mind. Satan wants us to believe that he will give us power over things, but he doesn't have them to give in the first place. He deludes us in thinking we can control ourselves when it comes to drug, alcohol, sex, and other addictions. He deludes us into thinking we can play with fire and not get burned. He wants us to believe lies, that we can do things we can't, that we can be someone we aren't, that we can meddle with sin and not be affected and that we can have power and control that just don't belong to us. See, delusion is so dangerous because we can become completely convinced in a lie. How do we deal with it then? How do we deal with temptation? I propose to you we need to prepare. Jesus was prepared for Satan. He doesn't even blink an eye. He was ready. He spent 40 days getting ready. And there is no doubt that he spent his time praying to his father, meditating on God's word. Matter of fact, he had spent the last 30 years preparing for this. You look back at the early life of child, childhood of Jesus. When, when he's in the temple, what was he about? His father's business. He was questioning and answering questions and arguing with the lawyers in the temple. You go read about Ezra. He was a man of preparation. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and commandments. How can we prepare for temptation? We need to know our weaknesses, honesty. We need to look inwardly and self-evaluate without pride, without arrogance. I need to know the ungodly things that I tend to desire and lust after. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as John put it. I need to know which one of those gets me. I need to know the things that cause me to doubt. I need to understand that the devil wants me to be delusional, delusional about me. And then I need to figure out a method on how I can protect my heart from these temptations. So I need to prepare. I need to protect myself. The Bible tells us to keep our heart with all diligence. Proverbs 4.23. Are you? Are you? I need to protect my eyes from wickedness like Job said in Job chapter 31 and verse 1. I need to be careful of the movies I watch, the friends I keep, the places I go, and the music I listen to. I want to protect my heart from temptation and ultimately sin. We need to be like Daniel, who purposed in his heart. You have God's word in your heart so that when Satan puts the hole in the ground and he tries to entice you, when, when the, the snare is set and you're going for the bait, you can recognize it. We need to understand what sin is. We need to understand that Satan wants us to fall to it. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have, you're not alone. 
I have too. I have too. And countless others around you have sinned. We've succumbed to temptation from time to time. But the glorious part of the gospel, brethren, is that Jesus Christ, that Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world, John chapter 1 and verse 29, came so that he could deal with this sin problem when we do succumb to this temptation. He came that we can have life and life eternal. He came to take upon him our burdens. Matthew chapter 11. He does it so that we can have life. This morning, if you're here, sin is controlling you. Temptation is prevalent and you don't know how to deal with it. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that God put us together in a church. I don't understand the idea of someone wanting to go at it alone. A family where we can struggle together. Where we can hold up the hands of those that are weak from time to time. And we can hug each other, squeeze each other around the neck and say, hey, I love you and I'm here for you. When someone's struggling, I, there was a place I preached in Oklahoma for a couple of years. And, and there was a young man, I baptized him several weeks after being there. He was in a wheelchair, but he struggled with alcohol. One night, about three in the morning, I get a phone call and it's the bartender in the local bar. And he said, hey, I got a young man here. He is drunk as can be. We don't know where he belongs, but he had your card in his pocket. He called the preacher. I showed up. I picked up Donnie. You don't know him, so I could say his name. I picked up Donnie. I took him to my house. Donnie confessed to me the next morning. He'd been struggling with it. For the next couple of weeks, Donnie stayed with us, lived with us. You know why? Because he was struggling. He was a member of my family. Brethren, we ought to view the church in God's great plan as a place of safety and of refuge and of love and help. If you're here today and you're struggling with sin, these aren't the people that you want to say, oh, I'd feel so ashamed if they knew I had sin. These are the people that you want to know that you struggle and they can help you. Maybe you're here, you're, you're not a New Testament Christian yet. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. It tells me none of them are outside of Christ. None. Not a one. There's not a blessing, a spiritual blessing outside of Christ. Your question ought to be, how can I get into Christ then? How can I get rid of the sin that I have in my life? Because let me tell you, you do. If you are not a Christian today, a New Testament Christian, you have sin. And it is a burden on you. And it is a mar on you that you can't go to heaven with. It will reject you every time. So today you need to get rid of that. That's why the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching that, that great gospel sermon. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of what? Sin. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. You today can put on Christ. Wash away your sins, as Paul put it. Be added to his church. Be part of a family that wants to help you overcome sin and get to heaven. Are you meddling with sin? Are you living around it too close? Are you, are you taking it in like a fire and getting burned and you need to stop? We want to help you. Are you not a Christian today? You want to become one? We want to help you with that. I don't know what your need is, but you do.
Won't you let us help you with it? Won't you come as we stand and as we sing? Jesus knows just what I need. Oh, yes, he knows just what I need. He satisfies and every need supplies. Yes, he knows just what I need. When other friends seem to forget me when skies are dark when hope is gone by faith I feel his arms about me and hear him say you're not alone my Jesus knows just what I need oh yes he knows just what I need. He satisfies and every need supplies. Yes, he knows just what I need. Let's all turn to our closing song. Be number 482. Gage, we thank you so much for that lesson today. Excellent lesson. We um, always need to to hear all the fundamentals over and over, that is what we struggle with. And we thank you so much for being here today. Let's remember um, services this evening. Um, Conrad, we have in the 5 or 5.30? Okay. Both 5 and 5.30. And then uh, services at 6 p.m. And uh, Sheldon be bringing our lesson in the week, so we're looking forward to that. Again, our closing song will be number 482. We'll sing the first verse only. After that, be led in closing prayer. If the skies above you are gray, you are feeling so blue. If your cares and burdens seem great all the whole day through, there's a silver lining that shines in the heavenly land. Look by faith and see, my friend, Trust in his promises, grand. Sing and be happy. Press on to the goal. Trust him who leads you. He will keep your soul. Let all be faithful. Look to him and pray. Lift your voice and praise him in song. Sing and be happy today.